Thanks guys so much for joining us. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here and we're going to be continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. And in spite of our desire to stop at every single verse and look them all over from now until Jesus comes, we're going to continue to kind of grab some just highlights um, regarding who Jesus is and our discipleship of Christ. And you can go back through the series online on our podcast and kind of see some of the building blocks that we've been creating along the way. And thanks to our amazing teaching team this summer, um, the additional information that's been given. We're only going to be hanging out in a few verses this evening in John chapter 20, chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Um, But we're going to try to talk a little bit about this characteristic of Christ and, um, And I think a bit of a call that he has on our lives as followers. Let's pray and we will proceed. Jesus, thank you so much for making us aware of your presence in this place. Thank you for awakening us to your goodness and your love and your joy and the hope that is found in you um, in moments like this as we're together. We ask right now, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, And through the wisdom and blessing of the Father, that we would continue to give you all glory and honor as we seek to worship you through the study of the word and the meditation upon your teachings. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place and upon each of us. Open us up to you. Open up our ears and our hearts that we might hear your voice and uh, draw close. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. John chapter 12. Now, um... Among those who went up to worship at the festival, and this is going to be the festival of Passover, there were some Greeks. Let's stop right there for a moment. The the gospel writer of John will sometimes use the word Greeks and Gentiles interchangeably, at least in meaning. So it could mean very specifically people from Greece, but it doesn't necessarily mean Gentiles. They could be Greek Jews, or it could be referring to people who are um, are not Jewish and are Gentiles of the nations. But they come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee. Why would they pick Philip of all the other disciples? Philip's a really good Greek name. So it might be like, hey, you, you, if they're Greek, right, you might be the one we can talk to here rather than like Yohanan and Yehuda and, right, like they're looking for the guy named Philip. They can do that. Um, And so he was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and he went to him and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them. They come, and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's sort of interesting. Like, just the mere presence of these Greeks showing up, Jesus sort of is clued that something's about to happen. They're in Jerusalem, and Greeks are there, whether they're Jewish followers, Jewish believers who are Greek or Gentiles, but they show up and Jesus is like, ah, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man is just a term meaning like this man here. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life, Jesus says, will lose it. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. That's the focus of our time today, although we'll be jumping about a little bit in the next couple chapters. The title of our sermon this afternoon is, Whoever Loves Their Life Will Lose It. 
I think this is a hard saying for many of us, is it not? Um, how do I love my life, um, and what must I do? If I love my life, then I, I can't have it anymore. I'm forced to lose it or to give it away. We spend a lot of time in our life, including making even devices, to make sure we can find all the things we're looking for, right? Whether it's an Apple AirTag or find my device, and we hear it pinging because we can't ever keep track of it in whatever room we might be in, right? And Jesus is saying here that we're going to deliberately lose something in order to find it. And I know that many of us might have been raised in Christian context or we've heard sayings like this before. And so it just kind of goes, oh, yeah, yeah. If you want to find your life, you lose it, like this kind of thing. But, but if I really ask you, what does that mean? Like you're going to have to explain that to somebody who's never heard that before. So in order to find the thing you want, you have to lose it. I mean, I guess if I want to find my keys, technically I have lost them just right before then, yeah? But then I have to do something to find them. And so, I, oh, if I want to find them, I have to lose them first. It does, but it doesn't seem quite sensical, does it? No? I mean, if you, especially life. Life, we, we're like, no, hold on to that. Look both ways before crossing the street. Do all the things to protect life. This phrase and this conversation Jesus has starts right in the middle of what we're going to refer to as the farewell discourses from now until the crucifixion, right? And then even beyond. Jesus is starting to talk to his disciples like something big is about to happen. And indeed, we all know, you know, just spoiler alert, something big is about to happen. There's going to be a crucifixion and a burial and resurrection. In case you didn't know, it's about to come. And so in the midst of all of that, Jesus starts to talk. Now, right before this, we talked last week about how a woman named Mary has anointed Jesus with oil and spikenard oil. And Jesus says, she's done this to prepare for me. And that don't, you know, it's okay. And But sort of like, is this foreshadowing? And should she have saved it for the actual burial? There's all these kind of things. And, and we talked about how in all four of the Gospels, the people around her as she does this extravagant act of worship and love for just simply who Jesus is get really upset that she does it. Right after that then, they've started to turn towards Jerusalem. And right after that, Jesus raising Lazarus to to life, Mary anointing Jesus, the plot to kill Lazarus and Jesus. Jesus enters into Jerusalem in triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. And he's going in for the festival of the Passover, which is the Feast of Freedom, right? So in the midst of this context, Jesus starts saying these sort of cryptic things. Something like, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is not in the Galilee when he says this. He's not standing in a field. Many of the other times when Jesus starts to talk about parables or things that you might see around town. It's right in the middle of the space. Like I can't tell you the number of times I've stood on the place or right near the place of the Sermon on the Mount and been reading the Sermon on the Mount. Like look at the lilies of the valley, look at the lilies and look at the flowers and look, consider the birds of the air. And as I'm saying it, people start to look around and go, oh, there's lilies right there. And then you'll say birds of the air and then birds somehow rustle up and go over and they're like, did you stage all of this? You're like, no, Jesus just was standing around here when he said it. So you can still see the things that he's referring to as he talks. But here in Judea, in Jerusalem, up in the hill country there, he's not staring at a field. He's not looking at wheat fields. They don't belong here. They could hang out down by the Shvelah, but they're not hanging up in the Judah hills. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, Jesus starts to talk about gardening. And again, if you can just sort of set aside all the Christianese that you have built into you for a moment, this is kind of a weird thing to say, right? Some Greeks come up, like, we want to see Jesus, sure. And he's like, hey, 
the time has come. Let me tell you about some wheat. And uh, if you want to find something, you're going to have to lose it. Oh, okay. Right after this little discourse, Jesus starts to say the next line, which is, I'm really troubled. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. And we're getting this little glimpse into the, the fully, fully human and fully divine Christ at this moment, wrestling with what he knows is to come. The tension is in the air. He's all, we've already had hints that one of his own is going to betray him. And as these Gentiles or Greek-speaking Jews start to come up, as, as the nations start to gather for this festival, as they come and start to seek him out, he starts to say very cryptic things like, this grain of wheat has to die, and I'm deeply troubled. And can I get out of this? What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Another said, an angel, a messenger has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. It's a very weird little moment there right in the midst. What do you think Jesus is talking about when he says this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. I mean, what is he foreshadowing? He's saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried in the ground. And this is deeply troubling for me, but it will bear much fruit. This is also a weird paradox in the midst of it all. And maybe when he says to them, hey, whoever wants to find their life has to lose it first. Maybe he's not just saying that to you and me 2,000 years later. Maybe he's not just saying it to those who are inquiring of are you, who are you and are you the one. Maybe he's also saying it to himself. Hey, if you want to find life, you're going to lose it. Can we allow Jesus and his humanity to be deeply troubled? My soul is troubled. I think this moment for me, I, I, the last, I don't know, like five, ten years, particularly with the immigration debate and justice issues surrounding that, one of my favorite signs that I see regularly at these conversations is they tried to bury me, but they didn't know I was a seed. I love that. Have you seen that protest sign up at the... If you haven't seen it, make it the next time you go to protest, right? Um, they tried to bury me, but they didn't know I was a seed. There's such hope in that, isn't there? And I think this is exactly what Jesus is calling upon. I will be buried, but they don't know I'm a seed. And I'm going to grow and bear much fruit. But this doesn't mean that he's not troubled, right? It can still be deeply troubling what is happening, even though he has hope in what the goodness will be at the end. So what does Jesus do when he's troubled? What does he do after he says this? He's going to speak about his death. It's, you should read it. We don't have time today, but continue. And he'll talk about the unbelief and the wrestling of the people. He'll cry aloud, whoever believes in me and believes not in me, but in him who sent me and everything. He talks about light. He does all of this. And so when troubled, he serves. Jesus then serves. The next big event that occurs after this discourse 
is that he goes for the festival, the festival of the Passover. He's hanging out with his disciples. And before there, he knows that his hour has come, it says, in chapter 13, to depart from this world and go to the Father. And I love this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he makes this commitment that he's going to love them to the end, to, to the very end of his efforts. And he gets up from the table during this Passover supper. He takes off his outer robe and he ties a towel around himself. He pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. This is amazing. I'm deeply troubled. So I will love you to the end and I will serve. Now, this foot washing is common, you guys. Not exactly what Jesus is doing is not common, but foot washing is common. They've found foot washing basins um, at different parts in Israel. The one on your left side of the screen with the two posts is sort of like a double foot washing basin. It's quite nice and beautiful. It's from the 8th century BCE, found in Tel Lachish. Um, incredible place. So you would kind of put your heel up on that foot washing basin and hold it there, and then somebody would wash your feet. Why would you do that? You don't have sneakers, you don't have snocks, your, your feet are dusty and dirty, and you're going to enter into somebody's home. And so you take off your sandals, and they would have you wash your feet before entering in. The other one on the right is found in the Herodian, um, Herod's beautiful like palace and posh place for himself down just a little bit uh, south of Bethlehem. Again, very heavy, right? So something that happens, you're not carrying around a stone container to each person's feet as they stay at the table. Something, he grabs some basin, something that he has, and this would have happened upon people walking in. So they've already had their feet washed, but he stops in the middle of the meal and he's like, let's, let me do this again. And it's weird. Have you ever done a foot washing? It's really intimate. I mean, unless you've paid for like a pedicure, right? And you've actually spent a lot of money and said, okay, here's going to be the agreement, right? I'm going to pay this person and I'm going to have the service. Foot washing, it feels awkward and weird. Anybody? Yeah. Okay, so like one time, really, like I, I do, I officiate some weddings and oftentimes couples will say something like, oh, we want to do a, a symbolic of our service for one another. We want to do a foot washing. And I'm always like, so don't. Let me just let you know the ceremony is already running long, um, and foot washing takes a long time. And what feels awkward now will feel very awkward with 150 people just watching and waiting for that foot to be done. And uh, they were insistent, which is fine. It was really beautiful. But the uh, groom wore like the tallest lace-up boots you've ever seen in your life. So there was lacing involved. It wasn't just a loafer situation. Now, that being said, if anybody here wants me to officiate your wedding and foot washing is really important, I'll tell you that's a great idea and we'll just do it with a smile. But, but it is very intimate. It can be uncomfortable. And as a seminarian, sometimes, you know, they do those things at like a seminary retreat to get your MDiv. And they're like, all right, let's just end our retreat with foot washing. I'm like, oh, is this dependent on our grade? Or can we go? Right? It's just, it can feel uncomfortable. And it does for Peter, right? So he comes to Simon Peter, Jesus does. And he says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answers, you do not know now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Also cryptic. Very helpful, Peter. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you very much. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. So somebody else has already done this coming in. Peter is not playing. He's like, no. Why not? What is he upset about? What's he so uncomfortable with? And why aren't the other disciples also protesting? 
What's going on here? Peter's not having it. And Jesus has answered him, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Do this or you're done. And Simon Peter said to him, okay, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Like, I'll do ritual immersion. I'll do the whole thing. I'll do mikvah. Wash all of me then. I'm here. And Jesus said to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. And then they go this for he knew who was going to betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So just to note, Jesus does wash Judas's feet. Right? That's happening here too. Why is Peter so upset? Well, to wash another person's feet was a lowly act, right? Even servant slaves could not be forced to do this. And it was an act of hospitality upon entering the home, but, but it was something that somebody under you did, not above you, not in some sort of rabbi-discipleship relationship. By washing his disciples' feet, Jesus, in love, acted to abolish the inequality that existed in nature between himself and the disciples. And he subverts the power structure by deliberately reversing their social positions and roles. Maybe that's what Peter is protesting. No, this is not how it should be, right? Disciples serve teachers, not the other way around. We're supposed to serve you, rabbi. You're not supposed to serve us. And Jesus is so insistent, you either do this or you're not part of me. And it's this same theme. Are you looking for your life? Then you must lose it to find it. As this passage continues on in John 13, when Peter protests, he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on Jesus, put on his clothes, returns to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus takes this power structure that's present and says, we're not doing that. It should not be this way with you. And we are going to do it differently. And he gives this beautiful example. Have you ever noticed that this quality of Christ is something that's pervasive throughout Christianity? Whether in practice or not, let's just say in teaching. That humility and laying one's life down for one's friends and in service to one another, that this is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir because I can look out at all of you and I can imagine right now and think of the ways, I already know, of the very many ways in which you do this on a daily and weekly basis here at Spark and outside in the world around you, of how you are laying down your lives for one another and how you're seeking to do good in this world. Humility and service, laying down one's life, this is core and central to what it means to follow Jesus. Considering others better than yourselves, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Years ago, long before my little, not-so-little one was born, I was walking by myself in Jerusalem late at night. And uh, it's kind of a busy, the, the new city's busy. It's kind of like a European Mediterranean outside feel, right? Everyone's kind of partying. And I'm walking by, I'm, I'm heading to my hotel. I was staying extra because I was leading extra tours. And Kevin had come home to make everything go because... 
He lays down his life in service of others. And as I'm walking by, there is a group of young adults, and they're having clearly a nice gathering and a big party, and they start yelling out at me, hey, hey, come here, come here. I'm like, oh, boy. Right? So I'm like, hey, what's up? And they're like, are you married? Yes, yes, I am married. <laughs> this is ring, and I need to keep going. Like, I'm done. Are you married? He's, no, are you happily married? Yes, yes, I am happily married. Thank you very much. No, you lie. I'm like, no, I, I'm not lying. I'm very happily married. Like, so, so you are happily married? I'm like, yes. And like, we are here celebrating his divorce. He just got divorced. We're all celebrating the divorce. And we just don't think marriage can be happy. And that's how we're, we're sort of marking the occasion. And I was like, oh, no, it, it absolutely can. <laughs> and it's hard work. I'm not saying it's easy, but, you know, for sure. In fact, I'm here right now because my amazing husband is home holding down the fort so I can be here and study and develop and, and grow as a, as a teacher. And they're like, no way. Sit down. Tell us about it. Now, poor souls, because they've just invited the pastor to come and sit down and do like a marriage session with the whole group of, fortunately they were slightly inebriated, so they were sort of a captive audience, right? So we sit down and we start talking and I'm like, so what happened? They're like, you know, I thought everything was going well. It was really great, but you know what? She just would not clean the lint out of the dryer. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I mean, who doesn't clean the lint out of the dryer? And I was like, that's, that's the reasons, those are the grounds for divorce. Lint dryer issues. They're like, I just couldn't stay anymore. And I said, well, so in my tradition, part of what we're taught is that you're to lay down your life for one another. So if your spouse doesn't clean the lint out of the dryer, you know what you're supposed to do, right? Clean the lint out of the dryer, right? That's, it's not that complicated, nor is it that heavy lifting. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, no, we, we lay down our lives in service of one another. Like, this is actually core and central to the teachings of Jesus. It honestly blew them away a little bit. Now, to be fair, there, I don't think amongst them was a Torah scholar who would have said, let's talk about Moses, who was the most humble man of all time and laid down his life in service to others, right? So it's, this is not only a Christian tradition, it certainly comes out of a long history, but it is core and central to who we know Christ to be because of passages like Philippians 2. It talks about how Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider himself anything but laid down his life in service to others, right? This is core and central to who we believe Jesus is and our own call to pick up our cross and to follow daily, to lose our life. Years ago, I was doing youth ministry, much longer than just the last story, like 20 years ago. And it was, I'll tell you, you know how long it was ago? It was when I was still willing to do a lock-in. That's how long ago that was. Does anyone know what a lock-in is? It was like when you lock the doors and all the kids stay inside with you and all the parents get to go home. Um, it's, it's, it's a brutal evening. And you have to stay up all night because, um, you know, kids. So, so we were doing this lock-in, and on f- the Friday night, or Saturday night, I think we were all going to be there Sunday morning. Saturday night, there was pizza. And the kids, we had about 80 kids, minimum, minimum 80. It was chaos. And in typical form and fashion of my, like, early youth group days, I think it was me, Kevin, and one other person. Like, it was, like, way too many children in this tiny little church, Lutheran church up in Millbrae, and more kids signed up than we knew were coming, and we always just say yes, and so it was a lot of chaos. So the pizza comes, and the kids are, like, wild animals in the savannah. They are just tearing open the pizza as though it is their prey, and they have not seen food for months. And I'm like, stop, stop, this is madness, right? And so they're all, like, 
freaking out. I'm like, you know what? And of course, you always have the kids who are like, it's okay, and I'll just get what's left. It's fine, right? Like, so you have like the good children back there who've taught how to behave in church, and the other kids are like, give me my pizza. So you have those two things. So I froze everything. Stop. Immediately stop. Jesus teaches us that the first will be last and the last will be first. So you know what that means. Those people at the back who are being super nice and polite, please come here. You're at the front. You get all the first choices of the pizza. All you crazy people who are right up here right with me, clamoring in my face, get to the back of the line right now. And they were like, no way. Like, so unjust. I'm like, do it. Jesus said it. Do it. So they get back in line. The next morning, it's bagels and cream cheese. Guess what happened at the lineup? Nobody would stand in the front or the back. It was like this weird amoeba of group of people that were like, no, but I don't know if you're going to do the thing. Like, are we still operating by society's rules where I should definitely fight to get up to the front so I can get that chocolate bagel? Or is it Jesus's rules we're going to pull from the back? I don't know. Best chance to stand in the middle. Just stand in the middle. So this way of Jesus subverting our systems is practical too. Right? It's not just a story about who gets to heaven or something really nice Jesus did a long time ago. The foot washing of Christ and his teachings here about losing life and finding it and letting the first be last and the last be first, it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's an example, a sign of what kind of God we follow and what kind of people we should be. There is this conversation about this type of characteristic of service and laying down one life and humility. And this conversation can sometimes sort of pop up in different, conver- different characteristics of what you are ch- trying to be. This is not, by the way, a virtue you put on your resume. You don't say to your boss, I am absolutely willing to let everybody walk all over me. Um, I always consider others better than myself. Um, really, no, pick that other guy, not me. I'm not, like the resume virtue is I can kill it, right? I am the best at the best. You definitely want to hire me. I mean, especially in Silicon Valley, right? There's a lot of competition and you sell yourself and you don't typically put, um, I'm trying to pick up my cross daily and follow Jesus. Like that's immediate Silicon Valley be like, and nope, right? That goes into the, that person's odd. So this is not a resume characteristic or virtue that people are going to put up there, but it is one people would talk about at your eulogy. There's a difference between resume virtues and characteristics and eulogy virtues and characteristics, meaning what is the type of thing somebody's going to say about you and me when we die? Are they going to say, wow, they really could code? Maybe, Maybe that, or are they going to say they were fantastic at and list that? It's possible. I think that's probably something that would come up. But the story that they would tell about you would be the time when you saw somebody in need and you stopped and you helped. Those are the stories that get told. Those are the ways in which you served others and laid down your life and loved one another. Those are the stories that get told um, around tables. Yeah? You see, in this whole situation and story, Jesus chooses an action which subverts the sinful power structures in which we all have a vested interest. We all want to be first. I want to be first. If you spend two minutes with kids, they all want to be first. And they want it to be fair and even and equal, right? That's not fair. They have more than I do. And I'm constantly going, hey, let's consider others better than ourselves. It's like just floats right over their head because the Jesus way is hard. But what he does here in this foot washing and these teachings about losing your life and picking up your cross and considering others better than yourselves, all of that is subverting the power structures 
in which we all participate and have a very vested interest. And maybe that's what Peter was upset about too. Maybe Peter is saying, but wait a minute, I'm the lead guy here. I'm the one who's always talking. I'm clearly the oldest. I'm the only one married. And I'm the one who's kind of second in command. So if you do that, what does that mean I have to do? And maybe fast forward to the end of John, when after Peter has denied Jesus three times, and then they're up in the Galilee, and Peter's just heartbroken and all of that, when Jesus is saying, Simon Peter, do you love me? He's like, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. Maybe it's not feed my sheep, feed my life. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Maybe it's a reminder. Then serve. Then do what a shepherd does. The shepherd serves the sheep. So Jesus chooses this foot washing action to sort of explain all of the things in the discourse he's been talking about. And laying down our lives, losing them means that we get to participate in Jesus's work of transforming the sinful structures of domination to the model of friendship characterized by joyful, mutual service unto death. When we talk back about that seed analogy that Jesus throws here in the midst, I was thinking about this and thinking about how when you're a kid in preschool, you used to do those seed plant things. You have to do and you get the bean sprout to rise up and you get to see how it grows. And you talk about the life cycle of the seed. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking how the life cycle of a plant determines how long a particular species survives. And when I think about the church today, the collective global church, the North American church. Sometimes I wonder if we've spent a little much too, a little too much time on the resume virtues. I have the biggest, I have the best, I have the greatest, I have the this and I have that, and we have the most Instagram followers or we have the most hits on whatever or whatever it is, rather than the eulogy virtues of laying down one's life in service to one another. And my concern is that if we've picked the virtues that run the world, but don't run the kingdom, that we're lacking the opportunity to participate in the transforming power and redemption of Jesus. And then that our church, churches, not the global capital C church, that's going to go on no matter what you guys, Jesus in charge, it's going to go on whether you like it or not. Capital C church is here to stay. But whether the small C churches that have committed to the resume virtues instead of the fellowship of Jesus if maybe our life cycle is going to be pretty short. Because the world is hungry for something that subverts the power structures that we're all struggling with. The world's hungry for something different. So my, my question for us is, what kind of seeds are we planting? What do we hope will grow? What, what is it that we're hoping we'll see out of our life's work, out of our households, out of our relationships and our friendships, out of our church? What are we planting here? And what do we want to see grow? Jesus plants love. Jesus plants laying down one's life and service to one another. And there's no denying the fact that that is what has grown. Now, other people might come and try to attach different things along. But what continues to survive is this mutual love that Jesus has given us. Jesus lays down his life. And when I was thinking about these themes in John of life 
and love and water and light and all of this. I was reminded way back to the very beginning when we talked about Nicodemus and Nick at night coming at the very beginning. And he has this conversation with Jesus about how can a man be born again if he is old? And Jesus, because Jesus is saying, he says, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You guys, this is what he's been talking about the whole time. You have to die first. You have to lose your life in order to find it. If you want to be born again, if you want that new life, then something has to die first. And so we die to self. And Paul will spend a lot of time talking about this in the epistles. And Jesus will show us in his very life, death and burial and resurrection, that this is how we are to live. Laying down one's life for one another, dying to self. New life is found in laying down one's life and being born again. It's found in acts of service to one another. Albert Schweitzer said this, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I know, the ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. And when you think about a time when you've been really happy, hasn't it been a time when you contributed and somebody was like, that made a difference? You're like, oh, that felt really good. I'm not trying to tell you to serve because it's good for you, but I'm telling you to serve for it's good for you. People who serve live very long lives. It's so gratifying and hope-filled, and it means that when we serve one another, we're actually creating the kind of community Jesus was creating and praying for and building and teaching and living and dying for. So here's a picture of me in my early service days. Um, I'm the one with the taller-than-normal bangs (laughs) right here on the right. This is my confirmation picture. I grew up Lutheran. And I went to confirmation three years. And it was every Wednesday, every Sunday, and it was 20 service hours a month. And I don't know how many people, I've talked about this many times, so it was so formative. In seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I don't know how many people actually did the service hours, but I did the service hours. Because I think my mom was going to make me no matter what. But also, like, I had to sign off, and I was going to turn it into people, like, in the church. I don't know if you know what Danielle means, but it means God is my judge. So early on, I've been carrying, like, a really heavy burden, make sure that I had those hours correct. So at the very beginning of that seventh grade year, I'd have to figure out, okay, I got 20 service hours a month. You tell a 13, not even 13-year-old, go and find 20 hours this month to just serve other people. You start knocking on neighbor's doors. Can I help you with your weeding? Can I do any? Had to be free. Couldn't get paid for it. Can I be babysit for free. Yeah, a 13-year-old really wants some cash, right? And so there was all just 20 service hours a month. You could serve at the church. They did make it so the attending church did count, so those were the easy ones, right? Um, And so we would do all of this stuff, but 20 services a month. And so at the very beginning of those three years, it was hard to find those hours, but I'm telling you, by the end of those three years, that had become a habit. And instead of like trying to scramble to fill it up, by the end of the three years, I was like, okay, what I do this month? Oh, yeah. And I just had found all these ways that, and I wasn't doing it anymore for the hours. I did it because I loved it, because it made me feel valuable and important, and because I was now a member of my community, and I was contributing and participating. And I was part of a family that served. My father had been, tried as hard as he could to, to not be, but it was eventually drafted, and served, and was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. He served. Service was a big thing in my family. My mom served constantly. Every room mother, Girl Scout, boy, everything. She was always serving. She was serving us constantly. And so I was watching people do this a lot. And you know what? I kind of wanted to do it too. And I saw it happening in my church. And it was valuable and it changed. 
It, it made it so much fun that I never wanted to do anything else. I'm not super great at this. Actually, if you want to see somebody who's really good at acts of service, it's Kevin. The people I see nodding. Because he, man, just lays down his life for others all the time. But it's, it's also so lovely and fun and beautiful and hope-filled and giving. So wherever we find ourselves, and I hope that this will be a church where we can create community like this and opportunities like this for the youngest ones to be part of the band and continue to help out. And by the way, if you're volunteering here and you're, seeing, you're serving here and you see a little one around, feel free to grab that little one and say, hey, come help me. They're going to love it. It's such a pouring into, right? Help me set up communion. Help come and set this up. Help tear down. The kids can be part of this too, right? It changes us. So if you're interested in starting, and if this hasn't yet been a way of life, or it wasn't a way of life growing up, here's how we can start. Perform small acts. Find small little ways to serve others this week. In your home, in your office, in your communities, at school. Start with those closest to you. Learn to walk slowly through the crowd. You know, when you walk slowly, you can start to see the need. Make your agenda to get to know each person and their needs that you're encountering this week. I would pray about it. I would say, dear Jesus, would you please help me see a need this week that I might be your hands and feet that I might serve? And then act. Do it. Do the next right thing. Begin serving. Your heart will catch up. It's called praxis. It's beautiful. And keep at it until your heart changes. We do this because we're trying to follow Jesus. And because he has specifically created this type of kingdom. In the fullness of active service, we open up our table. The hospitality that we continue to try to share with one another. And this reenactment of this table, this last supper, where Jesus did wash feet and serve one another. And at this meal, he said... For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.